Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Satellite, Profile Theater's online supplementary magazine. Satellite is where you will come for interviews with artists, activists, and educators, and whoever else might give you a deeper understanding of the work that Profile puts on the stage, or in these troubled times, over the internet. At Profile Theater, we spend an entire season exploring the work of a given playwright. Our best artists help us see. And at Profile, each year, we use a different writer's unique perspective as a lens that helps us see our shared world in new and surprising ways. With Satellite, Profile is always looking for new avenues to deepen our audience's experience of the art, pulling back the curtain, providing insight, and giving our audience a glimpse of the act of creation. And now, welcome to Satellite. This month in Satellite, we are talking about the world of Emily Mistail. Lynn Nottage's a mystical journey with the spirit of an elephant through the dark and twisted world of the ivory trade. We will be talking about the magical world of elephants and the nuances of that selfsame ivory trade with Bob Lee, general curator and manager of elephants at the Oregon Zoo. We'll also have a chat with a visionary theater artist and the director of Emlima's Tale, Reginald Douglas. And finally, we'll meet music director and composer of Emlima's Tale, the amazing Jen Mundia. Joining us now is Bob Lee. Bob, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what your job is at the Oregon Zoo? Yeah, right now I'm the general curator and the elephant manager at the Oregon Zoo. So uh, that essentially means I'm the uh, you know manager of the animal departments. Uh, great. Um, but you said uh, manager of the elephants or, or? Elephant manager. That's also one of my responsibilities. So I oversee... Uh, the elephant program, the training of the staff, uh, oversee the training of the elephants, those sorts of things. That's my background. I came up through the elephant world, uh, became a manager of the program, and now a manager of the entire animal department. Well, definitely you coming up through the elephant world or the world of elephants is why we've asked you to be here today. So if you could, you know, first, I guess, just tell me a little bit about like what drew you to elephants in the first place. They're one of those rare animals, I feel like, who everybody likes. Everybody digs elephants. Yeah. You know, they have such amazing personalities and they're so much like us that when we see them, we see a little bit of ourselves in them. We see our families in them. So I think it's just a natural draw and they're just so big and magnificent as well. You know, you can't help but like them. I got my start kind of uh, accidentally. I grew up in Florida and I had gone to SeaWorld when I was a kid and I thought that was, you know, interesting at the time. And so I had an interest in animals, Jacques Cousteau, if anybody's old enough to remember the Jacques Cousteau specials. I am that old. Yeah, I was. <laughs> it's kind of interesting to talk to kids now and they're like, who? And you let them Google him and, and just be amazed at everything he did. Um, but I was just driving down the interstate one day with my girlfriend at the time and the Lowry Park Zoo, which is now called Zoo Tampa, had just um, gone through a whole you know, uh, construction process of, of making it more modern. And I mentioned it to her that I hadn't been there since I was a kid. And when I went when I was a kid, it was old school, little tiny you know, cages. And it's just even as a kid, I didn't like it. And she said, well, let's let's go and see what it looks like. So we did. Pulled off the interstate, um, walked in, and at some point ran across the elephant exhibit. And when I did, there was a, a one of the keepers standing outside the exhibit, like reaching out, had his hand extend, extended toward the elephant, and the elephant had his trunk extended toward him, really reaching out to him and squeaking. And I, I didn't know that elephants squeaked. I had heard the trumpets on Tarzan movies. I had no idea that it was kind of a oh, oh, oh sound. And I was just amazed by that. And I sat there for about two and a half hours just watching the elephants and watching their behaviors. And they did one of their, you know, old school demos. And I thought that was interesting. And, and I went home and I couldn't stop thinking about it over the next couple of days. I just kept thinking about the personality of those elephants and, and the interactions that the staff had and that relationship that I saw. And I said, I want to do that. So I wrote letters because back before the internet, you would have to sit down with a piece of paper and a pen and write a letter and put a stamp on it. And I wrote to a bunch of zoos and I said, how do I do that? And I got a half dozen letters back and they basically said, you need a degree in something related, zoology, psychology, something like that, and experience. 
So as a kid that grew up in an apartment in Florida that we rarely ever had animals because they weren't allowed in the, the government housing that we had, um, how do I get experience? And so I started looking around and there was a, a program in Kansas where you had an internship at the zoo. And I am a very shy person. I could talk about the animals all day long, but naturally, if you if you see if you saw me out in the wild, I'm pretty quiet and reserved. Um, so I thought, well, there's an opportunity. I can go to this place where they have an internship, so I, I'll feel comfortable going because I have to. And that's how it all began. I completely switched my career trajectory. I was going to be a high school history teacher. That was my passion. My first few years of college, I packed up my stuff, uh, moved to Kansas and worked there and got my degree finally, worked at the zoo there. And then back in 1999, I was able to transfer out here because they had this amazing elephant family that was just famous. You know, I had heard about them even being in, in Kansas uh, and I wanted to be a part of it. And I was lucky enough to come out here. Uh, you used a phrase. Uh, well, I wanted to ask if it was a phrase. You said zoology, psychology. Is that one thing? Oh, no. When they were saying you needed a degree in something related to the care of animals. So it could be zoology. Uh, it could be psychology. Uh, what so I, that is what. So it was yeah. either like that was going to be like a really interesting phrase by itself or psychology. How does psychology apply itself to working with with elephants? Well, you want to you want to try to understand what they're thinking, what they're experiencing. And so the care we provide them, we want to give them as many natural opportunities as we can. We don't, you know, put them on display for people to look at. We don't do tricks with them so that people are entertained. We do a lot of natural behaviors and you want to understand how their mind is working so you can delve into what they need. And back when we constructed elephant lands, our, our big elephant habitat that we have now, it really played a huge part in it because everybody in the design phase said, we need to look at it through their eyes. What do the elephants need in order to be elephants and to exhibit natural behaviors? And we built that into the design of the facility. So it was more about them and less about us. Are you talking about at the Oregon Zoo now? At the Oregon Zoo now, yeah. Our our largest habitat is elephant lands. Spans six acres. The, the entire um, eastern half of the zoo is elephant lands. So when you come out there and see it, you're not going to see the staff as much as you would. You're not going to see um, tricks being done. We set up the environment so that they get to decide what they want to do. We have time feeders that go off randomly. They're walking 8 to 10 miles a day, grazing all day long. And that's really what we wanted to do, give them the opportunity to decide for themselves what they were going to do. Um, Emlima's tale, like I said, is about the journey of the spirit of an elephant, Emlima. Um, what can you tell me, like, what do you know about how elephants are treated in the world today? What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? That's a great question. You know, it really varies depending on where you are. Uh, the reality is that elephants, like all wild animals, lose to humans. So as we encroach on their land, they're losing. Um, the folks we work with in Borneo, they're on the front lines there. They find orphan elephants. They try to rejoin them with their herd. Sometimes there are elephants who keep coming back to the human populations and they become a problem elephant and they need to be taken out of that situation and, and brought into captivity. They try to avoid that as much as possible. But as the jungles get torn down and palm oil plantations get put in, it's inevitable. Elephants and humans are going to cross and the animals will always lose in that situation. So what the folks on the front lines are doing is they want to work with the people who own the palm oil plantations, who work in the palm oil plantations to create systems where the elephants have corridors where they can pass through. If elephants can do that, then the orangutans and all the smaller mammals and the primates can do it as well. So they're really working together in order to make a world that everyone can live in. Um, sometimes from our point of view, we think, well, let's just not use palm oil. Let's ban palm oil. When you actually go to Borneo and you ask folks like, what's, is that realistic? They'll say, no, the palm oil plantations aren't going to shut down and it, it'll revert to jungle. They'll plant something else. And we use such a small fraction of the world's palm oil in the United States by banning it in products here. Isn't, it isn't going to make a huge change. And you also got to remember when you talk to folks there, the palm oil plantations actually build schools and roads and hospitals, and they make it so that family members can stay together because dad's not going to a foreign country 
to to pursue a job and to uh, you know pursue money to send back home. He's actually able to stay there. So you're keeping communities intact. So it's not as easy as our American view of things that you all just need to leave the animals alone. You all don't tear down the jungle. Um, I think sometimes we have to look back in our own history. There was a Great Plains grizzly. A lot of folks don't know that. In the Great Plains, in the Midwest, there was a, there was a grizzly bear that was native to that area. They're completely extinct now. Well, why is that? Well, as we moved across the, the West, we didn't want grizzly bears in our backyard. So they were eliminated as a threat to us. And now we look at other countries and we ask them to react differently than we do. Well, that's not realistic. They, these, there are folks in Sukau in Borneo, where the elephants are coming through in herds and they're knocking down homes, you know? So imagine if you went home tonight and there was an elephant in your kitchen eating your Doritos. Your first thought wouldn't be, I need to conserve this species. It would be, get this thing out of my house. It's going to destroy my house. And that's a huge part of our role at zoos now. It's not just showing animals off for people to look at. It's building a connection to wildlife. We want folks to understand that there's a larger purpose so that when we, when we it, you know, what we purchase, what we do, avoiding ivory is a huge part of what we can do to help save African elephants. Um, we want folks to know by building an appreciation here at the zoo and show how their impacts, their day-to-day impacts can help the natural world. So... Wow, that was a really nuanced uh, thing that you just put out there that I had that I hadn't thought about. Because I, I just think about the elephant trade being horrible, um, and I'm sure you're saying that it, there are parts of it that still are. There certainly are. It's it's just very very complex. Like everything that we're dealing with in the world, there are so many pieces of it and facets of it that impact each other. But I think the more that we can do every day, the little things we can do every day can have massive impacts. Um, But really what it comes down to and what I learned by traveling to Borneo and talking to conservationists on the front line is that working together is the only way that we're going to solve these problems. It's not, you can't make someone else to be evil and their intentions are evil. You have to work together to solve these problems because they're too large for any one of us to do on our own. When you say work together, who are the different parties that need to work together? I think the folks that are um, impacting the natural ranges. So when you see areas that are you know, being planted and wild animals need to go through it. It's, it's private property. It's companies that own it by vilifying them. It's not going to bring them to the table. What we're really working hard to do and what the folks there are working hard to do is create corridors where wildlife can pass through. When the elephant herds come in, one of the biggest problems they have found is that folks try to drive them off the plantations to preserve the crop. And then the calves aren't aren't able to keep up. This isn't flat land. They're terraced and they can have some pretty steep terraces. And so the adults can scamper over it, but the calves can't. A six month old elephant can't keep up with an adult over these hills. So what they're what we've actually helped develop are these pocket guides. So the folks in the field can pull out these pocket guides and there's pictures. It's written in English. It's written in Malay as well, the native language that tells them, okay, if you see an orphan, shut off the machinery and sit quietly. Give it time to catch up with the adults. Don't try to scare the herd off because then that orphan is sitting there and the wildlife department, the government comes in and scoops it up. And if they can't find the herd, well, now you have a long lived animal, 50, 60 years, um, that's going to need care. And that's the last thing they want to do. They don't have the infrastructure like we have here in the States with zoos. They haven't gone through the decades of, of, of um, knowledge that we have on, on captive care. So they would like to get them back out into the jungle with their families. Um, so if the machinery gets shut down, if they, you know, production slows down, lets that baby catch up with the adults or lets the adults come back and find where the baby is, they will do that and they'll be able to stay together. So it's really about learning how to work together and bringing people together. That's going to help save these species. Um, it feels like a lot of what you're talking about is balance. Uh, um, and Lima's tale feels like it is a, a play specifically about the imbalances in the, the the ivory trade and and how human beings deal with animals, um, can you tell me a little bit more about like like why like like why are elephants endangered? Well, ivory plays a huge part of that. It's been used for centuries as gifts and trinkets and a measure of your wealth. And there's really no good use for it other than to be a, a you know a symbol of wealth or a, a toy. Um, and in order to get that ivory, you have to kill the animal. 
You know, some folks say, why don't we go in and just chop the ivory off? Well, what you may not know is that true tusks are connected to the jawbone. So there's actually a big ball of ivory that's up underneath the the skin um, in their head. And so that's why you see some of those horrific pictures of animals. Um, uh, I hate to say it, but, but, you know, cut up in order to get all of that ivory out. And now you have organized um, terrorists doing it. It's not just uh, the farmer who's trying to, you know, uh, get enough money to feed their kids. These are organized groups with heavy machinery, uh, with drones that are looking for the animals. They're doing it to supply terrorist organizations. It's it's really um, horrific what is going on. Uh, and so the ivory trade is really just has killed hundreds of thousands of elephants, decimated the population, drove them into almost extinction. So there are folks working hard on that. That's a little different than the human elephant conflict or HEC it's called sometimes that goes on in other parts. The ivory trade is simply slaughter. Is there a, uh, something in place that the Oregon zoo does to fight a fight against that? One of the, the most important things we can do is help educate and inspire. And, in, and you lean heavily on Inspire because if you just try to say, come here, listen to me, let me give you a lecture, people are going to turn away from that. We want to build empathy. We want folks to come in, draw a connection to the animals around them. And when they start thinking, well, what is it that I can do? That's where you can educate. You know, So um, it's treating elephants humanely, treating them and allowing them to live as they naturally would, and then letting people see that, letting people observe it, and letting them get inspired to learn more. That's that's probably the biggest thing we can do. Um, the other piece of that is the actions that we take in range countries. We have, like I said, a, a program in Borneo where we sponsor two full-time elephant keepers there. Um, the Wildlife Rescue Unit that works there, they answer all sorts of calls. 50% of their calls are for problem baboons, if you believe it or not. If uh, someone comes home and, and the monkeys are coming into their house, they call up the wildlife rescue unit, they come in and trap them, take them back out to the jungle. Um, so they spend so much time on that work, they don't have the time to focus directly on the elephants like we do here. We have six full-time people that focus just on the elephants. And over there, it's it's different. So we fund two full-time positions so they can focus exclusively on the elephants. So um, we're taking direct action by helping the people that are right there in the jungles taking care of elephants, but we're also looking to inspire the next generation so that we don't continue to have these problems generation after generation. Sure. You know, when Emelina's Tale first became a, the play that we were going to do for Profile Theater, that wasn't the first time I'd ever heard of the ivory trade and the evils of the ivory trade. Uh, but I realized that when I heard about it before, like you read about it, you're like, oh, man, that's bad. And then you move on with the rest of your life. Uh, again, I, you know, I've, I've never met an elephant except at a zoo. It's hard when I take the time to think about it. Like, what can I do? I think the the number one thing that you're identifying with this play and inspiring people with this play is avoid ivory. Don't purchase it. Don't have it. Destroy it. You know, you can make beautiful things out of ivory. But when people see that beauty, you covet it. Someone may, may think, I want one of those too. And that continues the problem. So get rid of ivory. Don't purchase ivory. Encourage someone you know who has it to get rid of it. Even if it's my great-grandmother handed it down through the generations, I would encourage you to completely destroy it. If it doesn't have value, they'll stop hunting the elephants to get it. The other thing I would say that a lot of us forget is inspiration. And I've, and I've said that before, but by talking about this with your friends and your kids and passing on that knowledge, you never know when you're going to spark the flame that turns someone into Jane Goodall, that turns someone mm. into Sir David Attenborough. You don't know what that's going to be. So for me, every time I'm getting, sorry, I'm getting goosebumps even talking about it. Every time someone comes through the gate, I think here's an opportunity to create the next great conservationist. So don't blow it. Every kid that runs up to you and says, you know, how much does the elephant weigh? We get asked that multiple times every day. You don't know which one that you're going to inspire that's going to save elephants for future generations. So cherish those opportunities. So everyday person walking around on the street, if this is a passion of yours, if this is something that you can help inspire others, do it because that could change the world. One conversation can change the world. Are there 
animal rights organizations or like the zoo or uh, nonprofits that specialize in this work that you, that you recommend or you respect or you trust that people could help out some kind of way? There's if you Google 96elephants.org, I believe it is, or 96 elephants, that's a campaign that talks about the fact and gets its name from the reality that 96 elephants every day die in Africa. Oh my On gosh. average, if you can believe that, 96 elephants every day die because of the ivory trade. So if you go there, there are places where you can take direct action to help animals and you can learn more about the problem. Another one is the International Elephant Foundation. You go there, um, that group vets programs that are happening around the world and you can find individuals or groups who are doing work in range countries and you can support them. And again, if you're not able to do that financially, passing that along, knowing that you can give that to somebody else when they may ask, hey, let me show you this. I think that number hits a lot of people because we know that they're, we're losing elephants all the time. But when you say to someone, 96 elephants every day die in Africa, that people don't realize the numbers. And I think that wakes people up. And so just having those couple of organizations, you can find a tremendous amount of information about what's happening in the native um, areas of Africa and Southeast Asia. At 96 elephants a day, is there a date that we can see where we will have no more elephants in the wild? I think that, you know, I, I don't think there's a specific date on the calendar because there are people that are working very hard to slow that down. So it, it is an average over the course of a year. Um, so we don't have a date certain, and I'd hate to put one on it because we want people to do everything they can every day. Don't wait for the future. If that date is, you know, if we did the math and that date was four years down the road, we, we have to start today. We have to take action today. We have to stop buying ivory today. Um, we have to support the people who are fighting the ivory poachers and losing their lives, frankly. People lose their lives trying to defend animals in range countries. So um, we have to do because something Because the people who kill elephants also kill human beings to keep that trade going. Absolutely. You're, you're, this is a multi-million dollar, uh, you know, multi-million dollar situation with, with trained terrorist organizations who are doing this work. So it's not safe for the rangers who are out in the field trying to protect these animals. Unbelievable. Yeah. And heartbreaking. It know. truly is. It mm -hmm. truly is. Yeah. Yeah. You would think that um, it would be easier to stop, but they're well financed. Like I said, they're using drones, you know, so people are having to adapt what they do to stop it based on um, the finances that these organizations have to continue doing it. How optimistic, unoptimistic are you? Like, is there hope for turning it around? Yeah, you know, I have to stay optimistic. Um, I want, I want these animals. I want to preserve, you know, the ability for wild animals to be in wild places and to do natural things. So I have to remain optimistic. I have to hope that, you know, like I said, those everyday connections that you make, the work that you do, the positive energy that you put out, the love that you spread to others around you is going to make a, a difference for the natural world. Because if it isn't um, going to be a place where elephants can push through the brush and, and walk through the jungle in Southeast Asia, uh, what kind of world are we going to have? You know, so I have to remain hopeful that, that it's going to change. Uh, one last question. So you had this date low those many moons ago where you went to the zoo two and a half hours. Did your girlfriend wait the whole time? <laughs> she did not. <laughs> <laughs> she did not. And I said ex-girlfriend. Yeah. Um, no, she, she kept w looking at other animals and I was just transfixed. I couldn't stop. And I'm still like that. There are times where, you know, uh, I'm walking through the zoo and any number of animals will cause me just to stop and watch. You know, I love animals being able to express natural behaviors. Wow. Um, yeah, my partner uh, is a huge elephant fan. I bought her a, a commissioned painting of an elephant for her birthday or Christmas, one of the two years ago. And she has, you know, elephant statuary all over the place. Wow. She loves them. She loves them. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Well, Bob Lee, uh, give, give me your title again. Uh, Bob Lee, general curator and elephant manager out at the Oregon Zoo. And, or luckiest person in Portland. I often think that. 
general general curator, manager of the elephants at the Oregon Zoo. Thank you so much for coming by and sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, uh, your passion, and your hope, um, and for also giving us a path to help out. Uh, that's really important, and I'm, I'm glad you were able to provide that. Thanks for having me, and thanks for putting on the play. Thanks for talking about elephants and, and ivory and what's happening out there. I really appreciate it. Right on, right on. And now a quick break, and we'll be right back with Reginald Douglas. I'm Josie Seed, one of the mentors in Profile Theater's community profile by and for Black women. Do you want to cultivate your own creative voice and use writing as a springboard for conversation and fellowship? Check out Community Profile, an affinity space exclusively for Black women that offers community building through monthly writing workshops with award-winning writers and exceptional teachers. There is something undeniably powerful about exploring one's own creative voice in a dedicated affinity space just for us, by us. Due to COVID-19, we aren't meeting in person at this time, but we are meeting online and have found it to be a rich experience for participants. The program is 100% free and 0% pressure. You'll meet people like you of all ages and backgrounds who are also there to work on their craft, share their stories, listen to yours, and together find a little bit of wisdom, support, and love. Here's our mentor lineup for the next two months. October brings Kia Corthran, award-winning playwright and former staff writer for The Wire, and in November, our very own Spirit of Portland winner, S. Renee Mitchell, will be running the workshop. For more information, go to our website, profiletheater.org, and click on the Community Profile tab and see why one recent participant called this program a life changer. Next up, Reginald Reg Douglas. I would read you Reg's bio, but it's a half a mile long. Suffice it to say that he's a director, producer, and advocate dedicated to new work and to supporting new voices, and the Associate Artistic Director at Studio Theater in D.C., and that is the short version. Go check out the rest of his extensive bio at ReginaldDouglas.com. Now, the day we were scheduled to do our interview, I unfortunately had a resurgence of technical difficulties, so we had to record our interview over the phone. Regardless of the sound quality, Douglas's intelligence, passion, and the poetry of his vision still shine through. And now, Reginald Douglas. So, Reg, thank you for joining me. Thank you for doing that. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, um, the first thing I, I wanted to ask you about is, you know, looking over your bio, you've done a lot of work. You're um, a guy who's definitely, like, on the rise and has made some waves. Can you tell me a little bit, like a brief history of like how you got into theater and the work that you've done? Sure. I mean, I'm a lifelong arts kid. So I grew up um, really active in like church. You know, I was in all the church choirs. I was part of a gospel choir that traveled around New York and the country. And gratefully grew up in New York and was able to see a lot of theater on Broadway and off Broadway since I was a kid. So I grew up really feeling the arts were both something I could do and be a part of um, all you know, my whole life. And I'm very grateful that I look back and I go, oh, yeah, I'm so glad I was in all those choirs, even though I can't sing. <laughs> I'm so glad I, you know, saw so, much, so many different kinds of theater, you know, musicals and plays and on Broadway and off Broadway and around the city and around Long Island and was able to do stuff at school. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful that I grew up being, you know, fostered in the arts and in creativity, um, but also community. And those three things really, you know, love of community and a love of creativity and accessibility really guide so much of my thinking about directing and producing now. Um, so it's great to look back and get the roots of how I got here in terms of my point of view and perspective on theater. Um, and I, I, you know, I went to college to study politics, actually. I, I love theater and always wanted to be a part of it, but wasn't planning to pursue a uh, professional career in this field at all. Um, I love directing my whole life. I've only been a director, really. Never was an actor. Knew I couldn't sing early on. <laughs> Knew I couldn't write a play. But I've always loved directing and bringing people together, which is the core of my philosophy on producing. But I wasn't thinking that this would be my career. I really thought I would be working in 
as a lobbyist, perhaps, or like as a speechwriter or behind the scenes on a campaign as a consultant. I mean, I was really interested in pursuing the politics dream. <laughs> um, and I lived that fantasy, really. I briefly went to school in D.C. and had great internships, and I was living the dream. It just wasn't personal enough. And so I, I leaned into my love of um, theater, you know. So I, I, I love musicals. I love plays. Um, I do love new work more than anything else that to prioritize. <laughs> so um, what brought you to a Luna scale? I always say, you know, I think Josh Hecht is one of the most visionary and kind artistic leaders in our field right now. And we've known each other for a few years, and um, – so I've tried to find ways to collaborate, you know, as director and producer at my theater companies and now at his theater company. And so I was so grateful when he said, well, you know, through the power of Zoom, <laughs> you could be in Oregon <laughs> next week. Um, we were able to make, you know, the dates work because so often, you know, I lived in Pittsburgh for a while and now as you see, obviously you're in uh, Portland. It's like if the calendar doesn't sync up, there goes the opportunity to work together, you know. But with this technology moment we're leaning into here because of the pandemic, I was able to be in Portland, you know. And when Josh called, kind of like what play he said, I would have probably said yes. <laughs> but definitely this play because it blends music and um, themes about worth and value and black life and poetry and theatricality in such a unique way that I was just really, really um, – excited and inspired when I first read the play. Just from the first read, I was like, oh, there's something calling me to this. And to now be able to figure out and flesh that out with this great team over the past two weeks, um, I'm so glad we were able to make this play happen for us. Right on. Can you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your vision from Lima Hill? Sure. I mean, so Lima Hill tra- uh, follows the journey of an elephant named Lima who we meet, um, you know, as an elephant. He tells us about his friends and his wife, Mumbi, and just the joys of his life. And he also warns us of the dangers that are always lurking. And those dangers in the real, you know, three-dimensional world are posters, you know. And there's obviously, I think, a spiritual journey that he's also warning us about, an emotional journey of the things that can attack us as people. You know, Malima, a, a black actor, black male actor taking on this part, I think is also speaking to the reality that black life is so fragile and precious in this moment in time. And so we have to, yes, be scared of the poachers, or dare I say the police, but also the insecurities and fears and doubts and the ways we can um, destroy one another or lack of value for, have lack of value for the other, for our neighbor. Um, and we go in Malima with this journey as he gets poached, or killed rather, and then his ivory gets poached and goes in this transatlantic journey, very similar to the slave trade, um, that ends up in someone's home. And it just really questions the value of, yes, things, animals, but again, of black people and black life, and particularly in this moment. Um, and so in this stage production, Lynn Nodded is the brilliant Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. Um, says Malima is, you know, a black male actor, that in every scene we see his presence. We see this actor watching people haggle over him and fight over him and negotiate, you know, how much he's worth or say, I don't want him, but I do want him. We watch this black man watch people uh, reduce him to a commodity. Obviously, in the audio production, we can't see that. And so our idea was, let's musicalize that. Let's have Malima become a melody that's forever present, that's haunting us right, uh, and reminding right. us of his presence in our lives. Even when we think he's not there, his presence is there. So we're using lots of music and melodies. Jin Mundi, I made an original score. The actors are doing beautiful harmonies to bring this score to life. Um, so that this haunting presence, the femoral presence of this ancestor, it's always with us. Um, so I'm really excited to, you know, to finally start hearing it all together and for audiences to hear how the score meets the text in this oral uh, production. That is terrific. 
that is super exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you explained all that. Um, because, uh, you know, for a lot of theater artists, you know, we can't do theater proper. So we're finding these new mediums to create in. Um, and it sounds like a uh, medium for us. I mean, for all of us on the team, except for our brilliant sound designer, Alicia, but too, this is our first time, you know, playing in this way. So, we're on the Zoom. We've got the microphones set up, and they're going into the the computer, into the Ethernet of the world. <laughs> and somehow, with the whole engineer, they end up, you know, in my email. And so it's just a fascinating new process. Um, but I think the thing that hasn't changed, you know, the mediums are changing, and live performance in so many ways feels broken right now. That live engagement with an audience feels in question, but the stories aren't broken. You know, the need to tell a story about how we should value one another more, care about black lives, especially in this moment, and think about um, our role and our complicity and our ability to change what justice looks like for one another. That story is especially urgent right now. And so even though we can't be in a building together, you know, safely in this moment to share that story and that connection that theater creates and those conversations that theater can catalyze and foster, we can still tell the story and reach each other. You know, empathy is still our business, <laughs> is what I like to say. So right. that's, right. that's still the goal. Um, it's just happening now with Zoom and microphones and sound design leading the way. Um, but, you know, that, that connection and that need to tell our stories and learn from one another is, is vital. Uh, we are kind of headed towards the end of our time. And I wanted to just ask you um, about the, again, you know, when I was looking at your bio, you know, COVID was hard for a lot of theater artists. Um, but you seem to be just as busy as ever. <laughs> it's, you know, and I'm grateful that um, – I've been able to, you know, transition, so to speak, into this this new moment of digital work. Um, been grateful to take on some film projects and new media projects, and now this audio work. Um, I've been doing a lot of play development work, so workshops over Zoom. Um, you know, which I find really exciting because it's it workshops to me. New play development is always about developing it towards that production. You know, getting to the best of the story. And so the idea that even in this pandemic, this kind of pause we're in, this intermission people are calling it, we're going to keep working so that when we get out of this, you know, on the other side, we've got stories ready to tell. Um, I'm really grateful for those experiences. They've been really inspiring. Uh, That's right. I'm currently trying to figure out how to workshop a musical on Zoom. And that's tricky because (laughs) Zoom is, you know, meant to recognize one voice at a time or one sound at a time. And so it's trying to, like, create choruses and harmonies Zoom, but it's also a fun challenge, you know, and there's amazing artisans and technicians who are like, what if, what if, what if? And I think that's the only way we can work these days is to lean into the power of what if and the curiosity and the imagination and, quite frankly, the expertise of our tech staff. You know, I'm I'm a Luddite, (laughs) you know, so I'm really looking to... Yeah. People, these tech gurus, you know, who are like, well, you could do this program or try it this way and we'll do it like this. And I'm just like, great. <laughs> Help us. Help us keep the work alive. Um, right. And you're in D.C., right? Job. Yeah, I'm grateful that, you know, I'm in D.C. at Studio Theater. I'm an associate artistic director here. I'm grateful that, you know, I have a full-time job in this moment um, in healthcare, and I'm really considering all the ways that, um I can be a resource and support to other artists, you know, and use my my platform and my position to employ other artists in this moment, which also is right. for me and for the actors, you know. I'm trying to do that same work here in D.C. Um, for our community, you know, put actors back to work and artists back to work and all the new creative ways we can think of. So we've done some artist response videos to Juneteenth and March in Washington, We've been doing some uh, interactive conversations with artists and actors and directors. So we're getting ready to do some audio plays and virtual plays. So we're producing and directing and curating. Um, it all looks different, but the passion is still the same, you know. Um, Reginald Douglas, I appreciate so much your time. 
and I appreciate your creativity and your energy and your intelligence. I feel like I could listen to you talk about art for hours. Um, <laughs> so it's it's super, super appreciated. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for showing up for us. No, thank you so much. I'm, I'm excited and, to connect. And now a quick break, and we'll be right back with Jen Mundia. Welcome to Voices from the Real World. My name is Bobby Bermea, and I'm your host. The Voices from the Real World podcast explores the lives and writings of everyday people, people who are just like you, or wildly different. My ability to see how other people have lived their lives or lived their lives gives me a different point of view when I look at what's happening in our own country. The writers we feature are participants in Community Profile, a program created by Profile Theater, Each year, Community Profile creates a new affinity space for a population important to Profile Theater's featured writer. And, you know, the world is pretty horrifying generally, and I find that if I couldn't laugh about daily low-level atrocities happening, I would be incapacitated. We then pair that cohort with award-winning mentors that run the gamut from poets to novelists to screenwriters and more. The result is writing that is singularly personal, provocative, powerful, 100% authentic, and encapsulates the entirety of the human experience. I used to try to get away from that, like writing how I speak or writing how I think because it comes from such a black perspective, especially given where all my family's from. But then I also understood it as, if that's the stuff that I like writing, if that's the stuff that speaks to me, then the right person will get it and they they won't have to be white. Come listen to Voices from the Real World. And now we're back to Satellite with Jen Mundia. Um, hello, Jen. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Bobby? I am stellar. Thank you for asking me. Um, <laughs> Jen, first of all, I would love to hear a little bit about your uh, history and your family. Because I think your your mom is from somewhere out of town. Am I right? <laughs> yes, my parents are from Kenya. I mean, at this point, they've been in the U.S. over 35 years. But, you know, they still claim those roots as as they should. Um, and my older brother was actually born in Kenya. And then a year later, they came to the U.S. and had me. That's fantastic. Um, are your Is your family musicians? So my grandfathers were both bishops in the Episcopalian church. And my dad is a preacher. So And we also black. So we just always sing. <laughs> Got it. Right. right <laughs> you know what I right. mean? Yeah. There's just a lot of factors there that there's a built-in musicianship, I think. Um, a church choir. And I think... Kenyan people are just very musical people. Uh, everywhere you go there, they're singing. Uh, it's usually a lot of church songs, but they're always singing, dancing. It's a very musical country, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and do they, is, is your dad still, a, a, your, your grandfather, are they still in the church here? They are both passed away, but they uh, were in churches in Kenya. They were bishops in churches in Kenya for years and years. And then my dad is at a church out here in North Carolina, um, and he just retired. He was a college professor for years, um, teaching ethics and philosophy of religion. And now he's living the sweet life and uh, just uh, working his church job. So I think he'll stay there a few more years before he throws in the towel completely. <laughs> Sounds like he earned it. Yeah, he definitely earned it. He's uh, he's glowing lately. <laughs> and are your uh, parents pretty supportive then, I take it, of your musical career? Yeah, you know, listen, I have African parents, so <laughs> they love my music. They love me. But you know they always wanted me to be a lawyer. You know, it's just that first generation, uh, like, hey, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be just something with stability. I think they just worried. It was more of, especially my mom, just worrying about me making it and just being okay and being able to take care of myself. Um, you know, and now that I have so many projects going on, I think they kind of see the fruits of my labor and, and they appreciate that. But it was touch and go there for a minute on my end too. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and, and tell me about your work. Uh, what are some of your influences and in, like what makes Jen Mundia's music tick? Yeah, so we had an interesting conversation before we started recording about, you know, me setting up, getting ready to to do this podcast. And I actually studied audio engineering in college. So as, as a part of that ingrained African parent, it was like, I can't just go to school to sing. Um, so I went to Berklee College of Music years and years ago. And um, I just was not planning ever on getting a degree in performance. I just said, listen, I need to 
I'll just make sure that I can sustain and like, you know, and that meant working in studios and potentially recording other people, which I did have a passion for. But at the end of the day, I started singing first, you know. Um, so I only lasted about a year in New York after uh, graduation. And I uh, I came back to North Carolina and um, ended up just singing I had, and I never stopped. I sang in bars here. I sang at open mics. Then I ended up working on cruise ships. Um, then I ended up recording an album from the cruise ship money. So I spent all that money. <laughs> and then I ended up back in New York after five years, which is really wild. It, it just feels like a place where like I just would never go back to. And then all of a sudden I just packed my stuff up and a- after recording the album and I went back and and uh, been there for seven plus years. And which album was, was that? So that was Busy Heart that I recorded with my cruise ship money and I still ran out of money by the end. I found out quickly how much albums cost. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that I'm, I'm proud of that album, but it was definitely one of those things where I threw all my uh, eggs in the basket. I just said, I don't know if I'll ever record an album again. Um, I want, you know, my face on the cover. I want it to be my name and I'm going to put every song I've ever written on this. Um, and that's just like interesting listening back to it. There's parts of it that I'm very proud of considering I was producing myself and, you know, putting everything together, but there's also parts of it where I cringe a little bit sometimes listening to it. Is that hard to do to produce yourself? I mean, I don't recommend it at all. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I did a play where I was in it and I co-directed it. And it was hard. Like, it was, thank yeah. God I trusted my co-director because after a while, I just gave up. Yeah. I mean, listen, there's people that do it and producing means a lot of different things. But for me, it's just having that fresh set of ears or just somebody different, somebody that's not you looking at the project. You have like, you have so much attachment to any work, especially when you're creating original work. For you to be deciding what to sing and how to emote and what order songs should go in and even just down to like sitting with an engineer and saying how it should sound like that's a part of the production. I mean, the engineer is twisting knobs, but you have to say, no, this is about the tom drum and that needs to come through. And that is production. You know what I mean? And it's a it's a collaboration. So it was I, I remember I lost my voice in the studio. So there were n- no scratch vocals. I was just listening to the band, which is terrible because I was so stressed out. And then I was like trying to make it to mixing sessions. And it was just a mess. Um, And like, all things considered came out with a decent album. But man, like I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> how many you albums, get a producer get one how many albums have you done now because you've, you've done like three now so i have two albums under jen mundia and then uh, several singles over the past few years and then i just started a new project um under the name esabalu and i have four singles um under that name now so eventually an album but for now um they're attached to different projects so i'm um, just some singles out which i'm very excited about and I'm going to be like super straight up and super sincere here when I say like, I thought your music was terrific. You know, like, <laughs> Thank you. And, and I'm, you know, and, and I I feel like every time I say that, I, I'm like, well, did you expect her to suck? Which I did not, but I, I just, I just didn't, you know, I was like, okay, well, I should listen to this just to, you know, for research and stuff like that. And I was like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> Thank you. wow, she's terrific. Yeah. I, I thought it was really great. Um, uh, so how do you know uh, Reg Douglas? I met him on this project. Yeah. So oh, the, my, really? Yeah. My connection to this project is actually Alicia, but our sound designer. Oh. Yeah. Her sister is my best friend. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so I've known Alicia, but since I was 11 years old, we went to the same church. <laughs> that's fantastic. So mm-hmm. so did Josh know Alicia? Ba? I suppose. I think she was, you know, Alicia was booked and busy. So I think he had tried to get on a few projects before and she wasn't able to. And now finally locked her in. And then, um, she was telling me a little bit about the project and she said, Hey, there's a play it's set in Kenya. Um, I'm going to be doing some sound design, but I think I need to bring someone else on for the music. And I said, I don't know what it was. And this might be my year of yes. And it's so funny because 2020 is not necessarily a year of yes for a lot of people, but it's been a really abundant year for me. I'm so blessed, so grateful. And, um, I looked at the text and like, I think a year or two ago it would have just been like, what? I don't, I don't do that. And I just, something told me do this. Like, this is me. Great experience for you. You can do it. Like something that's kind of been my, um, my mood this year. And my mantra is I'm abundant in all ways. And I think for me, it was like, you can do this. And I think that's something that would have stopped me before was just knowing that I, if, if I could. And, um, 
and it has been that kind of process where like even up to last night we we're recording until 11:30 my time and i parts of me are like what and then we started to piece it together and there's a first draft and it, and it sounds fantastic and i can't wait till it make it even better and it's not something i would have thought that i could do but i've been composing music for a while i just didn't call it composing i just called it like writing songs <laughs> and i've been directing singers and musicians for a long time i just called it my band and not uh, a cast you know and so i just had to kind of refocus my thinking when it came to like can you compose music for a play now don't get me wrong without alicia <laughs> it'd be a different story um and if everything every, meaning involving everything the process and what to be confident in what she can help with has been super collaborative and really amazing and i have so i've known her for so long but i have so so much more even more respect for what she does now seeing how involved sound design and how it can really elevate a performance so um with Lena's tale did you get to exercise some musical muscles that you don't normally uh, exercise yeah, I think it was mostly um, vocal directing, vocal production, just yep. kind of because I know how to produce myself. You know, we talked about that, right. but I just don't really necessarily know how to um, or I should say I didn't think I knew how to produce other singers or to um, direct them. And the, first of all, this cast is so kind and incredible and talented. So it has been a pleasure. But um you know, it's hard to come. We we spend like five, six hours recording and then it's like come back and it's like, hey, we mess with your mic because now we're in the time of COVID where people are engineering themselves. And it's like, I need you to do that whole heart wrenching song again. And it's like hard. to, <laughs> It's hard to talk to people like, you know, and just like, you know, explaining it. And there's a technical aspect and there is um, acting cues and things that um, are not really a part of my world. Um, but at the end of the day, like we didn't talk about this, but I started in the church and then I went to theater like every singer, every performer kind of has that one theater moment. I did theater for a minute. You know, I did it in high school. I came back and did another. I did like a production of Hair. I did Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Like I did. The, I had a, my stint. Right. Decided it wasn't for me. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's a world that I'm not totally unfamiliar with. It's just kind of code switching and saying, OK, I'm in the theater world now. So um, tell me about your approach to the music for Emilima's Tale. Um, so uh, before I even get to that, my mom ended up helping with some of the pronunciations and some of the meanings of the words. So it was really cool, honestly, to be able to chat with her throughout this whole process. I remember when I first got the script, I read her the first scene. I was like, what do you think? And um, so it, it ended up being a combination of me sitting with my guitar, doing a little bit of meditation on what the script meant, um, what I wanted to say with um, the music and then also pulling on my mom and dad and my aunts actually here from Kenya for, you know, the, for the foreseeable future. And um, and we just I just said, hey, what I, I a combination of me saying, hey, I remember you singing this song to me when I was little. What does it mean? And I was like, I think it's a lullaby because I feel like you saying it to me when I was going to sleep. But is it? And she would say, yeah, it's about a baby. And like the mom's not here, but she'll be here soon. So just sleep. And then I told her that about a little bit about the play. I was like, it's the, it's about the death of this huge elephant. And um, I said, do you have like a funeral song? And she was like, I guess. Yeah. And so she told me what the words meant and um and like we found some harmony. So that was really cool. Like I think this would have been a different experience for me if I was not living at home temporarily and had to kind of, you know, it's not a conversation you necessarily can have on the phone. It's like you kind of need to say like, okay, well sing it to me again. And and then my dad would come down and he would sing bass harmony and what? my aunt. And, yeah, it's really cool. My aunt when they would like, a lot of like music, even in, in Kenya, it's like similar to black American culture where like you have a funeral and you're like dancing and you're laughing and you're crying, right? So a lot of it is like stomping and it was just really cool. They would really get into it and I and, I, and they would always get so shy when I would try and record them. And I'm like, this is the behind the scenes. You need to like let me record you. <laughs> I'm like, it's research. <laughs> it's not for my Instagram. So that was kind that of the process. That is an amazing resource. Yeah, really, really. And um, Alicia, I think, called on me because of my Kenyan background, but I don't even know if she had any idea that I'd be able to use them and so pull on their that so heavily. And they've been really incredible and um, just like very willing. It's and it's really cool to get. I've never had a project where I can really or I've chosen to bring my parents in on. And this is really cool. chance. That's to do that. fantastic. Uh, yeah. you see, like uh, I'm really like loving the, also the, you know, like you're reading the script and playing your guitar and meditating on what you want to say with the music. Um mm -hmm what did you come up with like that you wanted to say with the music or is it was it something that can be put in words that 
sometimes I, I find trying to put something into like linear language is a uh, clumsy exercise at best. Yeah, so when people listen to the play, they're going to hear just a lot of soundscape, which is where Alicia becomes in. And I think we're like creating something very cool. I'm so excited for it to be finalized. Um, so I honestly have a lot of just like uh, just, just vowels. I, 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 you know what I mean? That's really what came to me it was because there's so much um, talk of the ancestors and the wind and the sound of the savannah. And for me, that's just like it's not really, you know, words. It's really just like this feeling and this like spiritual humming. So the first scene is almost like a Negro spiritual. And then it goes into um, a Kenyan spiritual that where I use the Swahili words and, and my parents have a tribal language, Luya, where they, they, you know, these actors don't know what they're speaking. My parents tribal language, you know, <laughs> um, and that that's getting them pumped. And then there is a scene. I don't want to spoil too much, but there's a scene where um, Lynn has words that are written out. That is literally the ancestor song. And we, I created a song from her, her script. Um, so it was a combination of, of things that resources that were given to me with um, with a kind of just like feeling, like I said, meditating on what I want to say. And that's not always like a word. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, in um, in theater acting, we're taught that uh, the consonants carry the meaning and the emotion is carried by the vowels. Mm. Um, so like that all makes a whole lot of sense to me. You know, that's that's yeah. really terrific. Um, do you have a, a song that you want to play for us today? Lord Jesus, let's pray about it. Um, <laughs> I do have a song that I'm going to play for y'all, but, uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna explain it. It is one of my newest singles. It's the first single. So just for some context, I started a new artist name, Esabalu, which is the village that my grandmother Oh, that's in. your new artist name. It's my new artist name. Am I yeah. going to have to find somebody else on Spotify? You are, and you should, and, and, and everybody should, because I'm very excited about it, and I'm making this very clear distinction between Jen Mundia and Esabalu, which is so hard, because I love myself. I love Jen Mundia. But, you know, I tell people, Jen Mundia also worked at um, Olive Garden in Times Square, and she worked at Best Buy, and she, you know, has a LinkedIn, and, like, it can be hard to separate those things when you're trying to be professional, and I'm really proud of some of the musical work that I've done under Jen Mundia, but Esabalu is kind of a fresh start. And um, it's really been lucrative and um, really fun to start this new project. And I'm, I think it was like a sign like, hey, you should have like if you're ready to, to, to kind of start a new chapter and it's OK and it's going to be great. And so, um, yeah, it's Esabalo, E-S-A-B-A-L-U for the folks listening out there. And, um, and and so this is the first single that I wrote under this name um it is a throwback bop but we're gonna give you the acoustic guitar version so bear with me y'all if uh if, if <laughs> <laughs> i haven't played it that many times and when i have i've done it with a band usually so um let's like give ourselves some grace here <laughs> i mean me i mean me okay so i'm just gonna tune up here and then um play y'all a little something
I wouldn't be running if I only knew I can't stop loving you if I wanted to You don't have to change my mind You're the perfect point of view Even if it was a crime I would do the time for you Cause you would never waste my time You are worth it every time Oh, oh, oh. We won't last If we're apart This is where our story starts Wildfire I don't wanna get away from loving you I wouldn't be running if I only knew Stop loving you if I wanted to Wapaha, I don't wanna get away from loving you I wouldn't be running if I only knew That I can't stop loving you if I wanted to My love is spreading like a you wanna go baby go baby catch the flame and we'll ignite if you wanna find love spreading like a wildfire we were on a roll baby roll baby we gonna have to go from loving you I wouldn't be running if I only knew that I can't stop loving you if I wanted to Wildfire I don't wanna get away from loving you I wouldn't be running if I only knew that I can't stop loving you if I wanted to Hey. We made it through, y'all. We made it through. That was fantastic. <laughs> Thank you that, so much. That was a beautiful song. Thanks. It sounds very different on the album, but uh, you guys can all check it out. <laughs> I can't wait to hear it on the album. But this is the MTV Unplugged version. This is Unplugged. I'm giving you a Lauryn Hill moment right now. <laughs> right on, right on. <laughs> hey, Jen, thank you so much for your time and your talent and your your great family. Thank your family for their, for their history and their work on our play that we didn't even know about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will definitely. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, my mom keeps walking around the house saying I wrote a play. So she's, <laughs> she's taking credit. She answered yeah. when I wrote a play. I'm like, great. Yeah, <laughs> right on, right on. <laughs> um, so uh, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Um, uh, I guess that's it. Yeah, you know? cool. It was and, great to chat with uh, you. I'll, I'll be looking forward to hearing your music. Uh, uh, if you want to give your, your, new, um, your new name one more time and the spelling one more time for the listeners out yeah. there. Yeah, so my new name is Esabalu, and um, I'm on socials either at Esabalu, E-S-A-B-A-L-U, or Esabalu Music, everywhere. And the shoulder shake always comes with the spelling of the name? Did I do a shimmy? E-S-A-B-A-L-U. Yeah, live it, You gotta do that. All right, then. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Bobby. It was a pleasure. Is it okay, because my favorite song so far of yours is Almost... You know, Aww, and I was thinking about using you. almost as a signal as a, as we sign out of the the pod. Is that would that be yeah. cool? Yeah, of course, of course, absolutely. Okay, good luck in everything you do. This has been Satellite Profile Theater's online magazine. Thank you for joining us on our maiden voyage. I had a lot of fun, and I hope you did too. I have to admit, one of my favorite things is talking about how art gets made. Our line producer is Jamie M. Ray. Our sound engineer is Robbie Gagno, and composer of our original music, Matt Weens. We recorded the Bob Lee interview at the Willamette Radio Workshop, and all the rest was recorded at Studio de Bermea. And all of it was recorded in Portland, Oregon. 
on the traditional lands of Multnomah, Kaflamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, and Malala bands of the Chinook peoples, the Tualatin band of the Kalapuya peoples, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia River. We acknowledge and honor the ancestors and survivors of this place and recognize that we are here because of the sacrifices forced upon them. And we honor their descendants who live on. And that is as real as can be. This has been Satellite, and I am Bobby Bermea. One love and peace out. I don't blame you Cause no one really wants To be alone Something like it So we keep trying